Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and I would like to once again formally invite you to come do some riding here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, because we think you'll like it, and yay bikes. Okay, our guest today is Elliot Jackson, who is very good at riding bikes real fast, and who also describes himself as the biggest nerd of all time, which around here we find both very endearing and very cool, since I guess apparently we just really like fast nerds. Anyway, Elliot and fellow professional mountain biker Katie Holden have just launched the Grow Cycling Foundation, so I caught up with Elliot to talk about Grow Cycling, their plan to get a Velo Solutions pump track built in downtown Los Angeles. We talk about why we need to create a more welcoming bike culture and how maybe we go about doing that. We also talk about Elliot's entrepreneurial bent and where that came from and how he continues to cultivate it. And we kick off the conversation talking about night owls since Elliot and I started recording this conversation the other day at midnight Mountain Standard Time, and then I think that it was like 3.30 in the morning by the time we actually wrapped up the call. And yes, since you might be wondering, after you listened to the first few minutes of our conversation, I did still get up at 7.15 a.m. the next morning, and my 7.15 a.m. experiment still really isn't going very well at all. Just just at all. It is a terrible experiment. Anyway, we are thrilled with what Katie and Elliot are cooking up with the Grow Cycling Foundation, and I am equally thrilled to now share this conversation with you. So let's get to it. Well, Elliot, first question, do you ever sleep? <laughs> I feel like I've been sleeping a lot less lately. Uh -huh. like I, but I, I run late hours, like we were talking about this before it started, where I, I've been like this for so long now where 10 o'clock hits and then I'm on uh -huh. <laughs> you know, and I don't turn off until like three o'clock in the morning. Uh -huh. And that's kind of my, that's like my, my time. I go to sleep at three, three thirty, and then I wake up at like 10, 10. 11. Okay. So little backstory here. I reached out to Elliot about setting up this conversation <laughs> and he is like, it's real busy right now. But, um, I, I think you said like Monday night, Tuesday night, and you were like, how about 11 PM PST, <laughs> which is, <laughs> wait, I have to, I feel like we have to say that it was because Claudio needed to be Oh, involved. that's right. That's right. Is this, so it's Claudio's fault actually, who that is not here. Uh, so I'm recording this. It's now 1230 AM my time. And, uh, you know, just a couple of night owls here. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, it's just sweet. But I was, I was cracking up that you never thought to reschedule to an earlier no. time <laughs> <laughs> no i i mean and your point was too that you're like we need to talk about this because you were saying you think maybe night owls are not respected every it's always about the early bird right getting the yeah. worm 
And, yeah. you know, what about us? We're chopping wood. It's past midnight, you know, and, and uh, we still got it going. So It's so true. Yeah. I mean, sleep is sleep. I just scoop my sleep back about, I don't know, six hours later than most people. <laughs> so I'll tell you, I'm currently involved in it. It's become slightly masochistic. I was like, I got to like rotate to an earlier schedule. So my alarm goes off every morning at 7.15 a.m. Regardless. But I am still terrible, as you can tell right now. Like, <laughs> So it's kind of, it's like, well, if I just get in that habit, maybe eventually I'll start going to bed at like 11 or 10 or something. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I've gone through that. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we've been there we've we've gone down that path <laughs> yeah uh well anyway i i'm i'm very pleased a lot of the people that i talk to they they go to bed at like nine or ten yeah i'm like uh-huh uh-huh as they're talking about getting up at four or five and it's like yeah. i'm much much more likely to be going to bed then so i, I right, totally so i, I appreciate say. you yeah first order of business here we're here to talk about grow cycling foundation Man, I I got all kinds of questions, and maybe the first one is: Give me your nutshell of what is Grow Cycling. So, Grow Cycling Foundation, our mission is to provide opportunity, access, and education to advance diversity and inclusion in cycling. So, I think for me personally, that opportunity just really rings strongly. What does it look like to? give people the opportunity to become cyclists and ride bikes in ways that they might never have thought of before. Yeah. So it's, I feel like it's a lot like <laughs> describing it succinctly is, is hard, but, um, I think that's kind of the main thing. That's our mission. And that's, that's, uh, what we're trying to do. One of the things that seems sort of wildly impressive, and maybe it has something to do with you not sleeping much, <laughs> but it's like, the announcement was sort of just made about this, but you can go over to a very well-developed website. <laughs> and I'm like, what just happened? And so I, I am curious, talk a little bit about when you maybe first started having the first idea for doing something like this. I mean, I think there's kind of like two questions there of like, what was the you know, the catalyst for me to want to start a nonprofit yeah. um, or be involved in a nonprofit. And then what was the catalyst for Grow Cycling, the nonprofit? And yeah. I think, you know, the catalyst for Grow Cycling, the nonprofit was um, Katie Holden, the vice chairwoman, reached out to me and everyone, I think, or a lot of people in the cycling community know her as used to race world cups yeah. back in the day and met her in the, on the racing circuit when I first got into mountain biking and she's been really involved, um, telling people stories all around the world. And it's just really passionate about social justice and, you know, getting, telling a different story and telling stories in general. Um, so she had reached out to me about the idea and it just kind of aligned with, um, my ability to execute on things. And I think for me personally, like the, the catalyst for me personally was, you know, when I stopped racing, I had more time to think um, just in general about everything. I think when you're racing, you're kind of hmm. just 
that's all you can think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it allowed me to like have more mind share about everything. And then the George Floyd murder happened and it kind of let me introspect a little bit about like how I feel about things and the, you know, maybe some of the biases that I felt um, that I had to, to squash, to try to go and race and, and things like that. And then, you know, the last step I think for me was that I found a way that I could help sustainably and that kind of suited my personality. Um, you mentioned like the website um, and I build websites and like <laughs> I'm a web developer programmer and stuff like that. So like I worked with one of my friends, Kate, uh, she designed it and I, and I built it and it's kind of just like the tip of the iceberg. Like huh. all of the stuff about gross cycling is kind of behind the scenes. Um, and so what you see like on the website and on social media and stuff like that is really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And that's kind of where I feel like I fit in the best is really just doing stuff behind the scenes, um, connecting people, the business side of things, the really the, like I said, the opportunity, um, less, less of an activist and educator in terms of social justice and more of just trying to help people, um, have the same opportunities I did, um, to be a world cup racer and and whatever they want to do with cycling. Yeah. Yeah. So Katie had been thinking about this for some time, reached out to you and you thought this could be a good teaming up. Yeah, totally. Because I had, I had talked to a decent amount of people in the cycling world. Um, after the George Floyd stuff happened, a lot of people reached out to me, um, you know, Chris Conroy Yeti, he reached out to me personally and, and a couple of other people. And so I got to have these conversations, um, about, you know, why is it hard to hire diversity? What are the barriers to entry? What are some of the things that you're struggling with? And that is really interesting problem for me to solve, right? Like how can we build some infrastructure and some, some pathways where we can get more people into careers in cycling if that's what they want to do mm-hmm. or we can get more people into media or we can get more people into racing um or we can just get more people into riding bikes uh if that's what they want to do and so i think that was one of the interesting things for me i had had these conversations and felt like i could make a real difference in in helping people you know get jobs and things like that and then katie had reached out with the idea for the foundation and it, and it wasn't crystallized at all. Like we, my mom actually came up with the name and, huh. uh, yeah. So it was, uh, we've just been kind of iterating over the last few months, just trying to figure out how, uh, how everything works together. Huh. Well, you just broached some pretty big topics there in that last, <laughs> you know, you and I were talking a little bit, uh, earlier, uh, about just all of the sort of complexities and some of the dynamics, you know, on the one hand for all of these kind of action sports or, or many of them, I won't say all because interestingly, right? Like I, I think it would be fair to say like skating doesn't have some of these same, I would say that's a, I think there's more of a fluidity in that space and we could talk about that. Right. I mean, a skateboard is cheaper than a full suspension mountain bike, you know, and a full ski kit and the rest. 
Sure. I still not sure that is the only relevant factor here. It's interesting to me that, you know, as you saying that some of the companies were reaching out to you, like, what do we do here? How do we get better about hiring in a more thoughtful and more sort of representative way? Did those conversations lead you to kind of crystallize anything in particular? Well, I think, um, I think it's just hard, right? Like this is not an easy problem. If it was an easy problem, then it wouldn't be a problem. Right. <laughs> but I, I mean, let's just, just taking that example of, of hiring people, how do you hire a person of color into the cycling world? Right. Like if you need a marketing manager, do you just go on LinkedIn, mm. um, and search for a marketing manager who's qualified and then make sure their picture is black. Yeah. Um, but and then so most of the time, you know, talent comes in through uh, referrals. But if there are no people of color there or no mm -hmm. women or people of different genders, then where do you get those referrals at? So you're kind of like a, it's a chicken and egg. You're like a cold start kind of problem that you need to solve. And beyond that, one of the other reasons that we kind of uncovered was that kind of the cycling world in general is not, and this isn't just cycling, but they're not set up for development. So I am much more likely to hire someone who already has the skills I need mm -hmm. rather than saying, I'm going to go hire a marketing person from, you know, Snapchat. Mm -hmm. um, because even though they're an excellent marketing person, I'm going to assume that they can't sell bicycles yeah. or market bicycles because they haven't done it. So you're kind of running up against two things there where not only do you not have a talent pool, but then you don't have any development. And then on top of that, because you don't have any people of color or have that type of culture, then how does someone come into your company and then succeed in an environment that they're not used to? Uh, so there's like, there's a lot of different issues there and it's not really, it's just a kind of the nature of it. Like he, it's just hard. <laughs> it's just really, I want to, I want to say it's like, it, it is like the fault of the world, I guess. Um, but at the same time, like I said, if you were to say like, snap your fingers and make a company more diverse, I, I don't know how you do that right now. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're working on is like, how do you put things in place that allow that to happen? Yeah. You know, it's interesting too, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, there were obviously almost infinite range of reactions to that. But I found myself actually in the immediate wake a little resistant when I saw either some outdoor companies or just members of the outdoor community saying things like, we've got to make the outdoors more inclusive. Because I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we need to stop bad cops from murdering people. Right. If the house is on fire, we're not talking about remodeling the kitchen, right? Right, right, right. And that was my like strong reaction. And so again, I'm not trying to put anybody down. Like we're all, I, I hope many of us are doing, trying to do our best here. But I kind of had that strong and immediate reaction of like, police reform. Right. And now, now I will say me personally, okay, 
we know this needs to happen. Some steps are happening, and that's been good to see, and it needs to continue. I do feel like we're now in a space where it. I think it does feel appropriate. This is just to me. I'm just one person. But like, it does feel appropriate. Like, okay, we know police reform needs to happen. We know bad cops need to not be murdering people, right? Now... In these communities that we are all a part of, what can we be doing here, right? right. And and uh, I don't know how, what that sounds like, but well, I think I think that it's um, I think that it's one of those reactions, and I think you know probably everyone. I can't speak for everyone, but it's hard not to think about the problem as a whole. Um, so when just like we would think about any prob- big problem, right? Like if you think about climate change, if you think about world hunger or something like that, then it's a huge problem. Um, and it's almost seems like an unsolvable problem, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I think the place that I have the most influence and I can make the most difference is in my community. Yeah. Um, and so that is kind of what I, what I want to focus on is saying, you know, sure, there, there is all of these things that need to change everywhere around me, like to the left, to the right, Mm -hmm. over the top, behind, whatever. But, um, if I can just focus on this one piece of it Mm -hmm. and I can make a change in my community, uh, then I can make some people's lives better. And that's what I'm. But that's what I'm focusing on yeah. rather than saying like police this or, right. you know, politics that or whatever. I just kind of trying to find my role in everything and stay focused because it can get a little overwhelming if you think too big. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, I, I, I hope many of us are trying to do this, right? Like in a way, should we step outside of our kind of area of expertise or the communities we have and go try to, and it's like, man, I do like, I don't know. I personally, I feel like there are others who have studied harder, have gone to law school, know how like the best tactical ways to go about trying to address certain issues. And guess what? They're going to be less good than we are. (laughs) at addressing these issues right these are really big topics this is about like what things are worth spending time on and what things are not and i think we make these decisions every day basically totally (laughs) i'm really proud now i i personally if, if it sounded like i was a little too you know harsh against those that sort of immediately were like let's make the outdoor spaces more inclusive i didn't mean that i'm like there's a we got to stop murdering people. But now I think it is an exciting time to be like, cool, let's go community. Let's, let's do what we can to make for better, more inclusive, more accessible communities and activities that we all enjoy. And if others would like to get in, let's, let's help that. And you've already used the key word, I think let's, so then how do we develop that? And I think what you got going with grow cycling is a real good way to, to get things going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, like you said, there are, there is a role and a place for everyone in this, just like in a team or company or anything like that. Like we all have a role to play. And I think for most people, it's uh, just being empathetic in a daily basis, you know, like we, 
having those interactions and not going too far, not, you know, doing something that's unsustainable and trying to burn yourself out um, because it, it does, it takes, you know, all of us working, you know, (laughs) me working to help the small cycling community in the grand scheme of things, somebody working in politics, somebody working Mm -hmm. on the ground floor, somebody working in schools, like to just make all of our lives better. I think that we're trying to, it's not just about helping one group or like, you know, same with Grow Cycling. That's one of the reasons we called it that because it's about like everyone needs Mm -hmm. an opportunity, right? Like everyone deserves to be able to ride a bike, whatever color, race, you know, everything. So yeah, I, I think that that's kind of important to to keep in mind it's just like that it takes a whole and takes all of us like working on on the things that we're passionate about yeah there's a velo solutions pump track that is kind of front and center of this initiative again claudio was gonna be on this in on this conversation with us he's currently i think like literally right now riding like the swiss epic (laughs) or something he's been riding like some crazy we talked to him the other day and he was like i just did a one and a half everest on an e-bike or something crazy yeah it's like i'm good yeah (laughs) i don't want to do that yeah he uh he's funny he's he's this whole covid situation has like he has more time to ride bikes. He said this recently, like we were catching up on a on a podcast recently. He's like, I've got more time to ride bikes now than I've had in like over 10 years. Totally. So totally. he's like, I think he's just delighted and is like, yeah, yeah I'm just going to ride forever. But so he was disappointed that he couldn't be in on this one with us. I just said, well, listen, we'll be sure to like, we'll, we'll get the three of us on another time. We'll get kind totally. of an up, update on how things are going. But some people may have heard previous conversations on this Bikes and Big Ideas podcast about Claudio talking really well about how central to a community these pump tracks can be. And I believe all of it. Like, I I believe all of it. So maybe you can tell us a little bit, though, about whether it was Katie that initially reached out to Velo or if you and Katie reached out to like, but how did that conversation get going? Yeah. So, I mean, just being in the World Cup scene, I know I've known Claudio for years uh, and then doing the little Red Bull presenter thing that I've been doing at the World Cups the last last year. Like I got to I was always at the same hotel as him. (laughs) So I've I've known Claudio forever, (laughs) forever. I'm just laughing because we used to he used to bring his music like his all of his (laughs) musical instruments to the race and we would jam because I play guitar and and drums and stuff like that. So we would always jam after the race. But so I think it was, it took us, and I don't remember what the catalyst was for us thinking about a pump track in the beginning. I think it kind of came about, about like, how do you, what is the entry point into the cycling world in the first place? Um, And then as soon as we thought about that, we were like, well, we want a Vela Solutions one because they're the best. And, um, and they're so cool and we know claudio and um i know he's he's got the pump for peace stuff and is <clears throat> has been kind of doing this a long time so it uh it kind of came a little bit naturally for us walk me through this right now it looks like right now the idea is that people are being encouraged to donate to the funding of this track if and when that you know enough money comes in 
a Velo Solutions track is going to be put down somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah, totally. We don't. We've been talking to a couple of places. We don't have a location yet. Okay, but it will be somewhere in Los Angeles, and hoping to raise the money uh, sometime next year. Mm-hmm. But we're totally not sure. We're just super optimistic people. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we've been like partnering with some people in in the cycling world. Some companies and and some great people have come on board. So I, I feel like it's it's. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't give a like I think it's going to happen, but I feel like um I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to get it done. I I think it's going to happen. So I'll I'll be optimistic for the two of us. You can be hopeful, <laughs> I'll be optimistic. I don't know if that's any different, but um yeah. I think it's I think it's more about not more if, it's more when. Yeah, like yeah. I'm 100% <clears throat> sure yeah. it'll get done and especially with how much support we've gotten so i know for sure it'll get done i just like i think we're all especially katie and i we're just all like now like yesterday (laughs) you know (laughs) and curious why la Mm -hmm. yeah so i think there are a lot of um places in la that haven't had the opportunity to to ride bikes in a lot of different ways, right? Like LA is such a huge place. And it's really interesting because you have kind of the beach and Malibu area that has some of the best road riding in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have the Santa Monica mountains and big bear and all that stuff that, which has great mountain biking. But in LA, you're kind of landlocked or city locked, I guess I should say. And, um, there's a huge cycling culture, bicycling culture in downtown Los Angeles. Like you see kids riding BMX bikes all the time, fixies, you know, my brother was a pro BMXer and he lived in downtown LA and there's a huge BMX culture there. But like we were talking about, how would you even know about mountain biking if you we're from there, right? Like I gave the example of myself growing up where I grew up in, you know, a relatively small town in Oklahoma and rode BMX bikes every day, you know, and the kids, we would build these jumps in the backyard and, you know, all the neighborhood kids would come and, and ride the jumps and crash because they were too big. But we were, we were young. We were, I was probably six, seven years old, but I would have, I never knew about mountain biking, right? I never knew about road biking. There's no bike lanes there, even though we didn't live in the city. Um, There's no, you know, so how do you ride safely? How do you figure out what um, nobody in my community, nobody at my school rode mountain bikes? So I think to me, you know, to bring the city to the outdoors, you first have to bring the outdoors to the city and, that pump track is kind of what that represents is exposing people to this, this great, awesome thing (laughs) that they haven't had a chance to do. Um, and I, and I think that kind of is what it means for us to start there. And, and it's not about importing cycling culture. It's about providing an opportunity and letting this community make, make it what they will, right? Like what does it look like for a community in Los Angeles to ride a pump track are they gonna ride it in a way that we never have 
thought right. of before, right? Like, are they going to ride bikes on it that we've never thought of before? And, and do tricks and do all of these things that are unique to them. Um, because I think as a culture of like black people or white people, like we're not a, we're, we're not a monolith. So I can't go and say, Hey guys, this is what it looks like to ride a bike. You know, it's about saying like, Hey, we are going to put in this pump track. We're going to provide some resources. We're going to, you know, get some barbecues going. We're going to hold some local community races. We want to hold world champs there. So, mm. you know, that somebody can ride their, their pump track for the first time and then race world champs at that same pump track. It would be amazing. Yeah. And, um, and so you can see like, even though you're going there and you're, you're developing your own way of riding this pump track, you still get to see like, Oh man, like this is cool. Like I can, this world champs thing is awesome. Right. And kind of use that as a, as a starting point, but it's really about cultivating that community rather than bringing in, you know, like I said, importing, the typical cycling community. Yeah. You and I were also talking before we hit the record button about how and or why it seems like, I, I don't know if we want to say the cycling community or mountain biking or sort of the enduro slash DH section of this. Like you, we might have to define terms and communities here, but why it does seem like things have gotten really narrow in terms of like you ought to be on this kind of bike and wearing this type of pack and not those sunglasses because that's what we wore three years ago right right how did this get so sort of regimented I don't know where that comes from. And I think it's interesting because like, if you go to, you know, a world cup or like at the highest levels, it's like, I feel like that's that community for, for me is like always been one of the most inclusive, but outside of, uh. outside of that, it's, it feels super exclusive. You know, like if I went on a road bike ride and I showed up at somebody's group ride that I had never been at, like, I would just get weird looks, you know, it's like, why are you here? Huh. And I like, I don't know if other people have this experience, but like going to a bike shop for me is like going to the DMV. Like it's so, it's so unpleasant. Like, <laughs> like I've had, I can't, like I can literally count on like one hand, like the times I've been into a bike shop. And I say like mainly in the U S uh, where it's been pleasant, you know, like I usually go in there and it's like, Oh, you, what do you need? Oh, you sure that's what you need? Like, I remember wow. I went in, there was like a bike shop that was completely empty. There's three people behind the counter. And I was like, Hey guys, like, can I get some sealant? And they're like, you sure you need some sealant? I was like, yeah, just need a little, just need a little bottle. I'm just trying to, you know, I, I just burnt my tire and, and, um, you know, and they're like, ah, we don't, we don't have any. Cause I was like hoping they could just kind of go into the go into the back and give me a little splash yeah. or whatever, you know? And they're like, yeah, you can buy some over there. Like we've got the big buckets or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I just need a little splash. Can I like maybe just give you my tire? And they're like, yeah, we can have it to you maybe by tomorrow. And I was like, okay. Like I, it's not like I wanted free. Like I was willing to pay. Like I had cash. Like I was willing to pay for the splash or whatever. But I feel like those are the kind of experiences that I have where it's just like very much like, you start at a very low level, you know, you start at like, you don't know anything. And it's, and it's funny because like, I never tell people I'm a pro 
mountain biker. And I feel like that's like the one place that I end up having to just so that people will at the bike shops. Yeah. Like give me, you know, like I get a lecture on like, yeah, you don't need that. You need this or whatever. And it's like, Oh, I, like I, I know, like I, I've ridden a bike before. Um, I kind of just need a tire or I kind of just need, so I mean, I'm kind of going a rant, but I feel like that, that culture is like, like you were saying of this bike is a year old. It's, it's not right. There's no, you've got a 50 or a 61 degree head angle instead of a 53 or 63 or whatever. Like I don't even, um, all of this stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, when you're going out and riding a bike and it's just supposed to be for fun where it's like all about, you know, the gear or like the coolest place you've ridden Mm. um, and all that stuff. And I, I don't know like where that culture kind of comes from, but I think kind of thinking about it, even for all new people, you know, of all races, genders, um, why would a person that's new to the sport, want to stay in a sport that's like that, right? Like if I'm a new person and my first experience is going to a bike shop and I have that experience or my first experience is going to a bike park and like, you know, somebody cuts me off because like I'm riding too slow or, you know, they laugh at me and make fun of me because I'm wearing my pads on the outside of my clothes or, or whatever it is, um, just because I'm a beginner, you know, you have to ask the question of like, why would they want to stay in that community in, yeah. in the first place? Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's an interest. It's definitely an interesting one. I don't know where that comes from. Hmm. I mean, I guess we do see this in surfing it has a bit of a history, right? Of being pretty territorial about certain surf spots. You know, there are other things we can point to maybe in some other sports. And I, I mean, I think like there is probably something inherent to communities about wanting to like you know the code you know the language you that's how we know you know you're a member of the community or whatever but i think then if we can acknowledge that and understand why it's like well that's how you kind of form a community in the first place maybe we just then need to be like cool community formed (laughs) time to like not worry about that time to worry about being less of an asshole and now just be more intentional about opening up these different mm-hmm. communities to to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, we were talking about that, like what can what can people do and what what is what is people's role? And like when I mentioned being empathetic, like I I think that that to me is the biggest thing that people mm-hmm. can do is just be empathetic. Like remember that we were all beginners, right? Like we were all the person that like, you know, had on some shorts and some shin pads that were too big or, <laughs> you know, like was riding with the seat too low or, or whatever it was like, like for sure. We were all the person on the janky bike. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember saw some pictures <laughs> when we were doing the gross cycling stuff. Like I literally was riding in, I must've been seven, eight years old. I was riding in sandals um, no socks or anything, sandals with a, on a BMX bike that probably where the handlebars probably came up to my chin. Um, <laughs> it's too big. Like I think we got it from like the bikes or used or whatever, you know? And, uh, and yeah, like, like that type of stuff, like 
we all did that. And I think it's just, um, like if we can remember that and Mm. just be like, okay, man, let's be more empathetic to what it looks like. And I think one of the reasons why it was a little bit frustrating for me is because you talked about surfing or skiing. And I think, I think that you mentioned that there is a kind of a outward facing communication about that. Like, you know, maybe don't go to everyone's surf spot that you don't know. Like that's probably a bad idea. Maybe don't go to somebody's dirt jump spot or whatever that you don't know. Like that's probably a bad idea, but on Instagram and, and a lot of people in the cycling community, like, say that we're so inclusive, right? Like there's a really a culture built on, um, or the communication Mm -hmm. is about like how inclusive and accepting the cycling community is, um, you know, in the outdoors and all of these things. But then, you know, like I said, when I go to a bike shop and like, no one gives me the time of day, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, you know, I know how to ride a bike or whatever, but like that isn't taken into account. Um, because people are not being empathetic to like what it would look like, even if I am a beginner, right? Like you shouldn't treat me any differently because I'm a pro or a beginner. You know, if I go to the local trail system that's public and people are like being condescending or whatever that is, like, I I think that that to me is, is where that disconnect comes in, where if you're communicating through your brand messaging or through, you know, your personal page on Instagram, um, that you're inclusive, but then at the next step, you're exclusive yeah. over here. I think that that's, uh, something that we can do better at. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, like among, yeah, the many things it's like, Hey, everybody who works in a bike shop right now, that's listening to this, you, <laughs> you people really are the front lines. Like you are going to be the front lines to like, some newbie walks in, you know, my story, like I, I got started in this world pretty late. And I remember when I like just caught fire for mountain biking and, you know, started talking to different people and people I was working with and stuff. And was like, well, just ride your bike around town. Like, you know, and, and they then were like, well, I've got a bike, you know, I haven't ridden it in years. I should take it into a shop and make sure it's working. Like what shop should I go to? Mm-hmm. And I remember recommending a shop and you know i would see them a week later and it was like hey did you get that bike fixed up and it's like well i went in there but honestly like i they kind of just made me feel stupid (laughs) and i and i left Mm -hmm. and i i heard this and like this was years ago and you're still telling this story and it's like dear bike shops <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I I don't want to like pick on because there there are amazing bike there shops. There are, and like it, it is totally cherry picked from my experience of going to the however many bike shops that I have had. But just as an example of of you know of every like of just being understanding of like what it means to be a beginner, yeah. and I think it's just so <laughs> interesting because we just as humans we just forget like what it was like to yeah. be a kid or what it was like to be you like a, a beginner or whatever um and i and i just think that would go so far for all of us right like yep. not just in because 
where he in bike shops is hard, right? Like yep. you were saying, like it, it, you are on the front lines and you do have those people that come in who are angry mm-hmm. and are, um, being ridiculous yeah. <laughs> and, and all of this stuff. Um, and, and so it is, it's, it's not an easy thing to, um, to be empathetic all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I think that that is part of the, the hard work that we all have to do, like including myself, um, if we do want to get more people into the sport of, of cycling is just be, be understanding of, of where somebody is in their journey. Yep. Yeah. And be understanding that our role, if there's somebody who isn't as far along as you might be, or I might be or whatever, be welcoming and totally. as helpful as possible. And I mean, it's like, man, cause somebody else is going to be further along in the journey than right, you are right. or I am. And it's like, <laughs> right. sure. Hope they extend the same courtesy, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, and I think it's just so interesting too, because there's, um, you know, I was talking about building the community in the, in the way that that community wants to be built. And, you know, we were talking about like people in, in Baltimore, like doing wheelies and stuff like that. And yeah. they are just as much cyclists as I am yeah. racing down a world cup track. And so I think it's sometimes we also try to push people into what we think is real cycling. <laughs> you know, you know, I want to, like people would be like, Oh, you need to race tour de France or you need to ride a super fast road bike or you need to ride this sick mountain bike and go do downhill or enduro or cross country or whatever. And it's like, man, like it's just, it's just bikes. Like, why don't we just have fun and people can ride them however they want. If they want to ride them around their block, all good. If they want to travel around the world, that's amazing as well. Um, but as long as they're exposed to it, right. Like as long as they know that that's an option. Yeah. Um, and and then giving everyone the the ability to to take or leave that option um i think is where where like i want to do the most work yeah you wrote a really great piece that appeared in outside magazine i think it was like a couple months ago there's a couple moments couple things in there that i wanted to ask you about uh, it's it's really fantastic and everybody should read it we'll link to it in this podcast but this might seem more or less arbitrary but that's okay it's you know it's <laughs> i'm the host right now so i get i get to ask the questions this statement in 2010 in my second downhill race ever at the sea otter classic in monterey i won the category one event and earned my pro card second race <laughs> Talk to me. What? (laughs) (laughs) So I, um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, not what it sounds like. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, that would make me feel better about myself. So please, please go on. So I, uh, I grew up racing motocross. And like I said, I, I rode BMX bikes. We built dirt jumps throughout my whole entire life. Uh, so we, we were very, very serious about motocross. Um, and I stopped doing that when I was like 15 or so and, you know, continued to ride dirt jumps, BMX bikes and stuff like that. And, and so I've had that, it wasn't my first time riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, talking about this serendipity of, 
of what it means. Cause even at that time, right? Like I wasn't thinking about riding a mountain bike. I was probably 17, um, had never thought about riding a mountain bike before. And, and it just happened to be that my friend got me to go up to Whistler. And so I went up to Whistler and I was like, this is amazing. And it also happened that that friend was super into world cup racing. So he gave me these videos. Um, I watched this movie three focus, mm. like over and over mm. and over again. And it, you know, it had all these world cup tracks and races. I was like, I just, I want to do that. I went up to, um, when we went to Whistler, like it was just so much fun. Like I had so much fun. So it was, it was just kind of the serendipitous moment. And then before I raced, like we, me and my friend would go and like do like time runs and stuff like that. And, um, all I wanted to do is do the world cup. So I, I didn't actually realize what the rules were, were, I thought that I could just go and race a world cup. And then like, I started reading the rule book and stuff like that. And it was like, Oh, you have to have a pro license and you have to do all this stuff. So I was like, okay, well I have to go and do this. You know, one of my first races was in San Yanez. Like I had to do two win two cat one races or something like that. So I found this one and I won that one. And then Sea Otter, like I knew it was like kind of a big race, but like didn't really realize. And then won the cat one in that. And uh, it was actually funny because I went on the podium and the guy was like, you got a pretty fast time, right? You're a little bit faster to be racing cat one. I was like, if I wouldn't have won, you would have won. <laughs> so I was like, you're calling me a sandbagger. And I was like, and on top of that, like, I didn't want to be in this class. Like, <laughs> so yeah, like I had totally had, um, you know, experience of like riding a, a downhill bike, uh, before I started racing, it was more of the fact that I like, didn't realize that I, there was infrastructure in place <laughs> that that made it where I needed to get my pro license and then get UCI points. Okay, so this is the part where, I mean, your wildly accomplished moto background is probably a fair way to put it, right? Like m- multiple national championships? Yeah, I won the last year I raced. I won four or five, maybe. Yeah. Somewhere, I don't know. I don't remember now. Was... <laughs> you know what? That's the difference between me and you. If I like had won national championships, I would bet that I would still be able to tell you exactly how many of those. <laughs> I feel like I I should know that. That's actually, yeah, you should. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but the transition from moto to this sea otter race, you had been putting a lot of laps on a DH a DH mountain bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I had ridden probably what I I think I got my first downhill bike when I was eighteen. Okay, and then rode that year, and then got hurt. I was like, okay, because I was planning on my first year of racing being in nineteen, and I went up to Whistler for the summer and separated my shoulder. And so then in 2010, so I'd like ridden for probably like a year and a half or so, but, but like I said, it's, it's kind of not fair because I, like, I knew what it meant to train, right? Like I knew what it meant to like practice and work on skills and do all that stuff from the motocross. And then I had this dirt jumping background that was, um, that's all I did all day, (laughs) dirt jump BMX bikes. (laughs) 
it all translated well, felt pretty natural. And, and, uh, yeah, you weren't, you weren't starting from scratch. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Again, I, people, they have to take me up on like, they got to go read this article. That way I can keep asking my like <laughs> weird questions, uh, from the article, probably a lot less important than some of the other things you touch on in there. But this, this comment, I also program and do a lot of computer and data science, and that is unusual for any pro mountain biker, period. <laughs> true, one, true, checks out. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got BMX background, moto national champion, and then computer and data science. Yeah, totally. Right. I um, I think it's, it's actually been interesting because I feel like only in the last maybe three years like have people really gotten to know my real personality not not in a sense of like not in a sense of personality but maybe my interests because i'm like i'm like the biggest nerd of all time and so and i always have been like i've always been super into computers actually like played this one video game like semi-professionally and like back when what? i was whatever 13 14 i should have been i should have been whatever it is. How old am I now? If I was 15 years later, like, Oh yeah. I would have been making a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, yeah. I, so yeah, I, I just been always like been a huge nerd. And so that transition when I stopped racing, my last world cup season was in 2017. Yeah. So I always knew that I wanted to do some sort of computer science, data science stuff. Um, and I didn't want to go back and finish school because, I've always been entrepreneurial and so, and, I, and I've always gravitated to things that I can demonstrate value at where if you're a racer and you want to get sponsored, I've always just been like, well, if I win a world cup, somebody will pick me up on a team. <laughs> and, and, um, and so that's kind of how I think about it. Like mm. if I can just get good enough, then no one can deny me. Mm. So that was kind of the approach that I took for data science as well. So I, I like started doing all these projects. I talked about it on this podcast recently and there's an article I can link you, but I scraped all the articles off of pink bike and did some analysis on them to see like what was the most upvoted comment and like hmm. all of this stuff. And I built a, another website that is like a data analysis platform for the world cup races and Totally. <laughs> Lots of, I always say too, like as an athlete, you have an unbelievable amount of free time on your hands yeah. because you can only train for, you know, whatever it is, three, four hours a day. And then, you know, you do your stretching, you do yeah. your rolling, you do your whatever, but there's a lot more hours in the day and you're actually, some, some athletes are really busy all the time. But for me, it was like train and then wait to train some more and then like, eat and then sleep <laughs> and that's kind of your life and so like when you're waiting to train i was like well i'll just read a bunch of programming books and business books and do because that's seems normal <laughs> maybe but not really <laughs> so wait you so you weren't like the 10 year old kid ripping apart pcs and putting them back together you were a you were playing video games 
Is that? I was doing that as well. I think like back in the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think back in the day, like that was all one, right? Like mm, you, right. I, I built all the computers and when you build a computer, it's just like you plug in different things and like the motherboard and stuff like that. But it was kind of more like the wild west because that was, you know, in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So it's not like everything was how it is now, how computers are like super easy and, and everything. You said that you've kind of always had the sort of entrepreneurial spirit or, or tendency. Where did that come from? That was for sure. My parents, but my parents, like we, I, I admire them both so much because we, um, that it's such a good job in so many ways where we didn't have any money growing up. Um, but it never felt like that. Hmm. Um, and they both went on to start really successful businesses from scratch. Um, and my mom actually started an investment bank from like the dining room table as like a stay at home mom. And so I think that was kind of always instilled in me of like just super hard work. Uh Um, and, and really kind of making your own path in, in everything. Um, and, and so I always, I always thought that was possible. And I think it also helps that I didn't go to school from like, I went to elementary school, didn't go to sixth grade, did like homeschool in sixth grade, Hmm. went to seventh grade. And then like, just didn't go to school like eighth grade through high school because we were racing motocross. Uh And then I went back and did community college, got my high school diploma and did like two years worth of university. But I think it was, is kind of an interesting thing because I, I missed out on a lot of that structure of, of what it means to, what it means to succeed in that sort of environment. And so the environments that I had to succeed in was like, okay, how do I get a sponsor for this year? Like, how do I, how do I win a race? How do I, um, you know, learn how to program on my own? How do I do all this stuff? I can be self-sufficient because in motocross, we had a really big family structure, but in mountain biking, my family didn't know anything about it. Right. Like my dad still doesn't really understand (laughs) (laughs) what it is, you know, like I took him to Mount St. Anne and he was like, why don't you just let off the, the brakes? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, Oh, he's <laughs> like, telling yeah. you to go faster. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, so wait, what is, what is the hard part? It, it's, it was, it was really interesting because I had to like really spearhead that whole thing myself. Um, and oh. you know, I was older, I was, you know, 18, 19, but just, yeah, like going to Interbike and trying to find myself sponsors mm. and put together a team and like, you know, negotiating contracts and all of that stuff like I had to do on my own, mm. put together a schedule and, and just travel and trying to figure out how to navigate a new country. And, um, and especially like after first got going, like Bernard, Bernard Kerr, like me and him traveled together for mm. three, four years, really more than that. Because when I was on Yeti, I traveled with him. And then when I was on Pivot, I traveled with him and we were just what, 20, 20 years old, 21 years old, like making our way through, (laughs) through different countries and like, um, all of that stuff. And he, it was awesome, you know, and, and that sort of experience I think really shaped, shaped and gave me the skills as well to Mm. do all the stuff that I'm doing now. It's really interesting. I I've, I've said this before, but 
entrepreneurship kind of got like hot and sexy. I don't know, five years ago now, whatever, how long it's been. And I will sometimes if I'm talking to, you know, college students or something, it's like, on the one hand, I want to tell them like, don't be living in this pressure of like, I got to go apparently start some huge brand or company or something. Don't worry about it. Be engaged in whatever you're doing. If you're delivering pizzas, there are things to be curious about in that job and like learn, pay attention. But it's funny in your case, like you didn't come up you know, the timeline, like that kind of this hot period of entrepreneurship thing, that was, you had already been doing your thing. And I think just explained it real well. I just had to make stuff up a lot of it kind of all the time. And it, mm. so you sort of naturally had to, I don't know if naturally is the right word, but you decided this is what you were going to do, figure it out. There's some places I want to get to time to figure out how to do that. Right. And I think I was, I was super lucky in the sense of I had parents that were, you know, I didn't, I wasn't going to school, uh, while I was racing motocross, but my parents made sure that we were learning lessons. Yeah. So it was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, what is, what is the value of what we're doing? Huh. Right. Like what is, what is your value to a sponsor? What is like, how are you thinking about like the opportunity cost of all this stuff wow. that you're doing. And so they were, they were like, they made sure that there were lessons all through what we were doing. So it was kind of like a real world education. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like we were going into class every day, but we were as a family, we were doing this thing and, and trying to achieve these goals and along the way of achieving these goals and like any goals that you achieve in life, like there's a ton of stuff to learn. Like you're failing every day. If you're trying to push yourself and learn, you know, I mean, that is like literally the definition of learning is you have to get some sort of feedback. (laughs) You have to like do something wrong so you can learn how to do something right. And, And I think they did a good job of like pointing out when those lessons were applicable. Hmm. Among the other things you're up to these days, I'm curious to ask, how are you enjoying being a podcast host? <laughs> you know, that's so funny because I'm like consume podcasts like voraciously, like so many podcasts over the years. And I think that was a little bit of traveling so much, you know, when you're in yeah. the car with a bunch of other people, throw your headphones in and uh, listen to podcasts. And, and it was... It, you know, kind of getting into like a little bit like more of me, like it was kind of my escape of, of like, I'm this super nerdy person who loves business and psychology and programming. But then I'm in this world of like world cup racing where that doesn't exist at all. Yeah. And so podcasts for me, were kind of like this escape into these interviews with people where I could like connect over these things that I wouldn't normally have the chance to connect over. And so I've always, I've always loved them and I've always been passionate about kind of pulling back the curtain a bit on things. And that Red Bull show, if I did a, I started doing this thing at the World Cups where I would talk to kind of break down a little bit of the track on practice day or track walk day or whatever it was, and then talk to the athletes afterward. And it was really great because I could ask terrible questions. I could just go up to them and ask them like, Hey, how was the run? And, and they would give me a great answer because it was like, you're talking to a friend. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the thing that I wanted to bring to the podcast was 
this idea of humanizing people a little bit more and saying, yeah, Loic Bruni is amazing, but he also goes through a ton of stuff and he's like also doesn't have a hundred percent confidence all the time. And he also, you know, has to train really, really hard and he works really, really hard and he's super busy and super bored sometimes, like just all of the things that make us human. And I think hearing those stories from these people that seem larger than life was really exciting for me. Yeah. So that was kind of the, like our first season of it. And then I got super busy uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, we need to end that and, <laughs> and I'll pick it back up. I definitely want to pick it back up because I definitely want to dig into like maybe some of the more business side of things. Hmm. I was talking about like Bernard Kerr yeah. and like him running that pivot team, you yeah. know, something like a story you don't really hear a lot. Like why, like how did that even come about? How does this kid like start riding as a privateer for pivot. And now he runs the pivot team. It's just such a cool story. Yeah. So yeah, all all of that stuff. There's just so many cool stories Mm. to tell, I think, as you know, (laughs) hearing you talk about your podcast and by the way, it's called Reggie radio, right? And I was like, why is this called Reggie radio? (laughs) And so one of my favorite things is episode number one with Benar very first question out of Greg's mouth is like, why is this thing called Reggie Radio? Totally. And it's totally. like, that Greg, he just gets right to the point. <laughs> I, I like this guy. Yeah. Given everything that you've kind of been talking about, and you talk about this in the podcast, it's like our intention here is to kind of pull the curtain back, right? We want to kind of show you how some of these people did it. And going back to where we started this conversation, right, about, you know, making sure that people have opportunities, that they're aware that if this is a space or a road they think they might want to walk down, Mm -hmm. that maybe we've helped provide some tools or blueprints to, you know, reduce some of the friction there. And it's like, well, tying it all together here. You know, it makes me think of, so there was an interview with Sean White. And I think it was on Tim Ferriss's podcast. I heard it on a podcast. <laughs> but um and and he was talking about how he had read uh Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers. So yeah. that was like kind of the ten thousand hour thing book that kind of popularized that. And he said that it made him think about his life and how the main points of that book was talking about how lucky and how serendipitous everything is, you know. And Sean White was was saying that he thought about his life and he was like, you know, I thought about how lucky I was to grow up in Southern California where I could where I could snowboard and I could skate. And then I thought about how lucky I was to be able to live near a mountain that happened to have hmm. a super pipe that was built by the X Games person who builds a super pipe. Yeah. So I had this world class super pipe in my backyard. And then I was even more lucky to have, there was like only a couple of, I think two, he said, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Like one like little uh, lift or whatever that took you back up to the top of the super pipe. There was one there and one in Sweden. And so that lift just happened to be in his backyard. So he could do, you know, way more runs than anyone else in the world. So like his 10,000 hours came from being able to, ride this world-class super pipe 
and be able to get all these runs in and then be able to skateboard in the winters or in the summers or whatever or at the same time so it's like remembering like how like serendipitous mm. all these things were and like it was super cool to hear some of those backstories like greg's and how he talks about meeting you know being able to go over to europe and like have people to take him around and show him the ropes and we all have those moments and I think that we kind of, as humans, I don't think we're comfortable with that. <laughs> we like to think we, that we make our own luck. Mm -hmm, yeah. But like I said, even with my story, it just happened to find this friend who was super into World Cup racing that happened to take me up to Whistler. And one of the things with Grow Cycling is is like making making life a little bit less serendipitous for people that want to get into cycling, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe you would say even more, right? Like you just happened to grow up in the city in Los Angeles that has a world-class pump track. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Like, think of that's, isn't that so exciting? Is that like, this is going to happen. A track's going to get set down. And in 15, 16, 20 years, we're going to be hearing some kid telling this story. Yeah. That would be awesome. Right? I mean, like that stuff, man, like I, I, it's just, it's the most exciting thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think for me too, it's kind of a, we as in grow cycling haven't kind of released or talked about a lot of the next phases of that because it is more than just a pump track, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we're not just building a pump track and being like, cool, like we'll see you when you're a professional. Good luck. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I definitely want to like say that for, for everyone. Like there is so much behind the scenes about, you know, the way that we plan to support everyone there and, um, and provide them a path to do whatever they want to do with cycling. So yeah, it's definitely exciting. So are you, are you able to talk about any of that or tease it? Or are you guys still trying to sort of, you know, formalize some of this stuff? I think we, we definitely have it formalized and in nitty gritty detail. But um, I think the main three points for us are the community hub, which is the pump track. Yeah. You know, what do you, how do you get into cycling? How do you, how is it introduced? How is it accessible? The second piece of that is, is career, whether that's as a marketing person, as a mechanic, as a racer, as a photographer, videographer, documentarian. And then the third piece of that is the storytelling piece. What does it look like to tell diverse stories rather than use diversity to tell a brand story? Because it's great if, uh, you know, somebody uses me as an ad campaign for an ad campaign, but it would be even better if, you know, somebody was able to see themselves, right? Like if I was able to see somebody that came from where I came from, right? Of just like riding a bike in the backyard, and what that journey looked like for me to get into cycling rather than seeing this larger than life figure of Greg Menard doing something that I probably will never be able to do. And so I think those three components and how those combine mm -hmm. is I think where we 
are focusing all our energy. Like how, how does somebody go from the pump track into a career? And, and as they're going through that path, like how do they see themselves in the media? So like for the media stuff, like we're partnering with great people. We've got Pink Bike and Red Bull. And one of the reasons we're partnering with all these companies is because we're saying like, what does it look like for somebody to be ready for an opportunity at Fox or at Yeti Cycles or Santa Cruz Bikes? And I think we that we can do that by, you know, getting people ready and showing people a path, right? Like if you said at the pump track, you know, we need to maybe provide some bikes for the little pump track races that we're going to have. But then those same bikes can be used to teach the kids who want to and, you know, adults who want to how to mechanic. And then those people who are interested in mechanicing have a straight path. We can, you know, qualify them, make sure they're ready, work with the companies to um, get a sort of curriculum going where now we can put them into a company, right? Like we can get them a talent pool. I talked about like the LinkedIn problem where you just go look for a marketing person, but what would it look like if you were like, Hey, grow cycling is there talent in my community. Right. And, and who is ready for this. Right. And it's a better, not only is it, it's a better way to hire talent in general, right? Like you're, you're vetted and qualified for a position at these companies. So I think that that's kind of and of course, like, it's not like we're also going to, we don't plan on building a ton of pump tracks around the whole world. Like we want to use existing infrastructure. We want to partner with existing organizations because there's great organizations doing a ton of awesome work. We're just kind of the glue that holds everyone together. I failed to immediately recognize that educational, that mentorship, that element where companies might be coming to grow cycling and being like, who do you got that's good and qualified in this area? That's really interesting. Totally. Like I said, it's, it's, it's a really big value add, right? Like not just from a, you know, we're trying to solve a problem but we're also trying to provide people with value and having qualified candidates who are especially diverse qualified candidates who can provide a different outlook and a different perspective in your company is just gonna help you know yeah it's really cool by the way if claudio had been able to join us on this call when you were like we're not planning to build pump tracks everywhere i guarantee claudio would have chimed in and said yeah, yes we hey, are if he, if he i'm hey we are totally down but they're expensive they are <laughs> they're very expensive they are so uh yeah i i know of claudio's hopes and dreams for a pump track in every town so we'll uh i don't I'm know down. give we'll, me give me there just need to find uh, some money yeah yeah <laughs> well you know it's almost 2 a.m at least right. at, here in colorado it is <laughs> but before i let you go i'm i'm curious if i think of your if your every day as kind of a pie chart how much of your time is kind of going into grow cycling right now other projects that you're working on other things you're super interested in or curious about right now and maybe I'll lead this a little bit into what are you seeing for yourself, say, in the next three, five, ten years? Do you, do you think in, in those kind of timelines or are you kind of just in it right now? Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I, I think I 
think of I have like goalposts. There is a there's this really cool not even gonna start because I'll get two in the weeds, but um I don't really have like goals. I have like goalposts where it's like I want to I want to, you know, help start the Grow Cycling Foundation. And there's no like in this amount of time. Um, or, mm-hmm. and I want to do this because I think there's like some asymmetric return on, on that sort of stuff where if you meet the goal, it's like, cool, that was expected. And if you don't meet the goal, then it's like, I'm devastated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I'll just, uh, you know, set, set the, set the course and then just work as hard as I can to meet it. So my like day to day, it was it last, last week was really interesting because I just hired two engineers for Reggie for that, like the Reggie radio, what that's about. I would have like some meetings with them and then I would do some programming on Reggie and then I would commentate Crankworks. And then especially last week, like I would, it was probably actually flipped where I would have meetings about growth cycling for, you know, all these companies and trying to pitch. (laughs) I never pitched so much in my life, Mm. but it was kind of split between those three. And, and that's kind of where, I am right now where I'm, I, you know, I'd normally, I guess, be doing crankworks this year um, and doing a little bit of racing, getting out and riding my bike, maybe doing some photo shoots, not super serious, just for fun, doing the Red Bull show. And then I have Reggie and Grow Cycling. So I think it's been interesting not racing because it really just shows me how much mind share and how, for me at least, like how there is no room for anything but that. And now that I'm not racing, it's like, cool, I'm going to start a startup, Mm -hmm. like help start a nonprofit, like, you know, do some commentating, ride my bike Mm -hmm. a little bit. So I think in the next year, like hopefully we'll get the pump track built. Hopefully I'll launch Reggie, be doing, you know, whatever commentating stuff. And in terms to like, I think um, for sure, if people want to get involved with Grow Cycling, Mm -hmm. we, you can, you can always donate. For sure. We would love that. It's definitely not a requirement. We actually have an FAQ question that answers like, what can I do if I can't donate? One of the things we need to add on there is that a lot of employers have donation matching programs. So like getting that set up at a company or or even spreading the word to a company to see if they want to be involved because it's it's super... It's super open. Also, volunteers. You know, we're we're not taking salaries. We're not making any money off this or anything. And so we definitely welcome the help. But uh, yeah, I, I think we're just excited. We're just so excited about like about what this means, and I think I'm excited personally to get you know the pump track built next year. I really want to have worlds. I that would just be the best. Mm-hmm. Like I've just been kind of like the last two months, been working like 14 hour days mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like thinking about like how cool would that be if yeah. we could have world championships at this pump track. Yeah, for sure. I already told Claudio, it's like, I'm there. So like, I know, like, just tell me the date. I'll be in LA uh, in totally. 2022. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Would be super cool. Is there anything more specific to say about like, what people right now or what brands should be doing? Like, do we want to say like, reach out to Katie or, you know, or are you like, do you, maybe you already know, like most specifically, this would be the most useful thing? Yeah, no, I think in terms of that, I think it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sad because like right now, you know, 
as I was talking about a little bit before, like we need to get the pump track built before we can really do anything. Like I've had a, a lot of people reach out with that are part of existing nonprofits and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And, and we will for sure be working with everyone and anyone that we can. Um, but right now we like, we don't have anything and, and like our time is kind of best leveraged, like me making phone calls and raising money, yep. you know, getting companies involved and getting, you know, the word out and stuff like that so that we can get the pump track. Cause the quicker that we do that, the quicker that we can partner with, you know, a, another local organization who is providing bikes to schools so that we can, you know, bring those kids on a field trip to the pump track. Uh, and, and so in saying that, like, there is not a whole lot that we can do in terms of um, partnering with anyone right now. Hopefully, you know, middle of next year, we'll, that'll be a different story and we can start construction on the pump track and get start getting some, some of that stuff going. But um, for sure, you can reach out to to Katie or or myself, probably myself, or the, there's an email on the website. But yeah, so um, in in terms of that, like, we we can't do a whole lot there but like i said like in terms of volunteers like we've i've had a couple of people who do design that reached out and it's like cool that would be awesome you know if you want to help us design a newsletter and i can program it up mm. that is cool um so any any people like donating their skills is like really really super cool i think the other thing to to mention is like that you don't have to do anything. <laughs> like I really want people to do things sustainably because it's, I, there's a lot of people that are getting into and educating themselves on social justice and things like that. And, and maybe getting too involved to a level where it might not be sustainable over, over a lifetime, mm-hmm. because that's kind of what this is, is just a, it's a, it's not a problem or or an issue that is going to go away in a short amount of time and i think understanding that and like coming to terms with that is really important so if like if being sustainable means that you are just a better human to other humans then like that's awesome right like if you were just understanding one of the other things like i say is like for People, you know, who who are in positions, um, you know, in a company at a high level, if you know, if they're not of color, like you actually have this crazy cool opportunity to provide a perspective that like I could never provide because I'm not in that room with you. And I think it should kind of empower people to be like, man, like I can actually make a difference on an individual level just with my day-to-day interactions because I have these opportunities that you know, maybe other people don't. So it's, it's not about doing some crazy, huge grand gesture, you know, uh, if you can donate, great, we would love to have you, but also just, you know, us all doing our part to make cycling in the world, like a little bit better places. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm very happy with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Elliot, this has really been great. There's a thing we do, and it feels kind of greedy of me. You know, again, this podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas. <laughs> I'm trying to get better at the end of the conversation about asking, and now you're on the spot. It's sometimes fun to ask people, like, so 
do you have a big idea that feels a little perverse on the heels of a 90 minute conversation about one very big idea. But when I say if you whether you have a big idea, there's a lot of permission here for it to be a really bad idea. Sometimes really stupid seeming ideas turn out to be <laughs> really amazing. There's no judgment here. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to kind of turn this around uh -oh. and ask you this question because I have an answer that is, is apparently a bad idea. Okay. So would you rather live for one year, best year of your life, mm. world peace, no social injustice, like everyone's happy, You anything you can imagine is happening. It's just the best. All the money in the world. And then at the end of that year, you forget everything. Everyone else in the world forgets everything as well. Huh. Or would you rather, and, you're, and you lost the year of your life, or would you rather just live normally? I would take the normal. Yeah, that's what everyone says. And I would not take the normal. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, take... <laughs> you... So you want the blowout year. Totally. You, you just got the like 10, like 11 out of 10 year. Right. So because my point is like, man, like, do you remember that year when you were like eight years old? Like, like how much of that do you remember? And you remember everything up into the last, like the 365th day. So the whole year you're just having the, like not not even like partying like you could do whatever like you could just i don't even know like you could go to all the bike parks you wanted meet all the people you wanted have all these cool conversations with all the people you wanted and okay so i'll give you a, a cheating answer as well that because i gave this to my my friend who then used it to qualify like bumble matches she would ask the people and she would judge them on like what their answer was to like all these questions and this is one of them one of the people said that they would choose the year just because you would save a bunch of lives so like the amount of people that die in a year wouldn't die because like they would just be one year later wait but now that doesn't really make sense because no. like no, that's it's only in your world. Yeah, okay, never mind. So that doesn't work. <laughs> she needs to go back to that Bumble person. If that's the if if she approved that right. person on Bumble, we might need to go back and be like, uh uh, we think that maybe that person failed the, the test, actually. I was I was pretty impressed with that answer until it was, just now. It does seem good on the on the face of it, but Totally. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my bad idea is that I would take the year. That was a hell of an answer to the question, though. <laughs> Honestly, this actually to bring Claudio back into this backstory on, on this is that I was talking to Claudio on a different podcast. We do the Blister podcast, and this was a few years ago, and we were kind of getting close to what I thought was wrapping up. And I... I sometimes ask kind of a perverse question. You're welcome, you know, to use this, by the way, if you need to ever for Reggie Radio. But sometimes I'll just ask at the end, like, what's the best question I haven't asked you? Right. And Claudio's response was, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> 
and you can still you can like still me. listen to this episode but it the whole conversation then just takes this right hand turn oh that's funny and we get done with that and then like a while later i was like i kept thinking about this amazing conversation we had and i was like dude we gotta start this podcast oh that's funny and we're gonna call it bikes and big ideas because sometimes it does feel like the bike world can just get a little too insular and uh so that was kind of the the driving factor behind it but i think like your answer to the big idea question is right up there with Claudio. So that's pretty, pretty impressive. Oh, that's too funny. Oh. Yeah. I didn't have anything prepared for that one. I think you, I think you knocked it out of the park. I should have, I should probably give people a little more heads up on that one. Yeah. So, Hey, um, it is officially late. It is two o'clock on the dot in case everybody, anybody's wondering, Elliot, this has really been fun. And, uh, I'm, I'm really psyched to hear about the work that you and Katie have going on with with Grow Cycling and I'm going to be bugging you about some ways where I think we might be able to get involved in, and contribute but this is cool it's going to be fun to watch and, and hopefully participate in as well oh yeah for sure I mean I think that's one of the things as well that we're there's no sponsor lockups or anything like that we want everyone to be involved no matter if it's you know, not donating anything or donating a lot or, you know, providing whatever it is. Like we want people to be involved the way that they want to be involved, you know, like that same thing. It's just meeting people where they are. So man, super awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to everything. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Elliot for the conversation, and I would encourage all of you to go check out growcyclingfoundation.org, learn more about it, and see how you might contribute. I'd also like to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying conversations like this one, we would encourage you to subscribe to the Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and share this episode with your friends. Let's go ahead and get the word out about the Grow Cycling Foundation. Okay, until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again next week.